This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hi and welcome to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show here on Plains FM 96.9. My name's Martine and I'm an alcoholic. The purpose of this show is to increase public awareness of Alcoholics Anonymous as an effective means of recovery from the disease of alcoholism. Our show has two parts. First we talk a bit about alcoholism, what it is and what AA can do to help and then we'll interview a recovering alcoholic who is an active member of AA. I'm now going to ask our guest to read the AA preamble, which is read at the start of every AA meeting. Hi, I'm Sean. I'm an alcoholic. AA preamble. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organisation or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. So what is alcoholism? Alcoholism is a disease, not a disgrace. There's no shame in having an illness or a disease. An unusual feature of this disease is that it will do whatever it can to convince you that you do not have it. However, once it has a hold of you, the progression of symptoms is like the classic disease model, and the victim is as helpless as a sufferer of cancer. If you're an alcoholic, you're at the beginning of a long road that usually ends in one of three places, prisons, institutions or death. If you think this sounds dramatic, we can assure you that our collective experience has shown this to be true. The challenge is to convince the alcoholic to admit that they need help and become willing to seek it. Denial is a major symptom of alcoholism. The alcoholic is often the last one to recognise it and admit that they have it. Our definition of alcoholism is that it's an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind. The allergy is the physical aspect of the, of the disease. After having the first drink, the phenomenon of craving develops and we lose control over when we will stop drinking. The old saying is one is too many and a thousand is never enough. And yet because of the obsession of the mind, the mental aspect of the disease, the alcoholic is compelled to, to keep picking up the first drink and this makes us powerless. We often hear from sober alcoholics that many doubted whether life could be fun without alcohol. Fortunately, those same people report that their lives have improved dramatically since they became sober. The 12-step program of recovery, which is discussed at AA meetings and which is outlined in the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book, is how we get sober and maintain our sobriety one day at a time. This program has a proven track record of helping otherwise hopeless alcoholics to achieve long-term sobriety and recovery. It has taught us how to enjoy life sober. Okay, for anyone who's just joined us, you're listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show here on Plains FM 96.9. We're just about to interview an AA member who is going to share their experience with alcoholism. So, Sean, I wonder if you would like to introduce yourself and give us a quick sketch of who you are. <laughs> well, I'm uh, Sean, and I'm an alcoholic, and um, I've been in the program for uh, 16 years. 
Um, I have a wife and three children, and, and um, I are working. And uh, I was, I come from Ashburton originally, actually, and born in Ashburton. And um, so I have uh, two sisters and a brother, and and in, uh, in the family. And I have another brother. Other brothers and actually in the fellowship. And um, yeah. Okay, cool. How was your childhood? What was it like growing up? Yeah, not very. What do I believe was a very um, normal childhood. Very, yeah. You know, we were certainly loved. We were provided for. Um, there was nothing in my childhood that, um, you know, I could pinpoint to say what would cause me to drink the way I drank. Yeah. Um, you know, there was no explosions or anything like that. Um, you know, I was born in the seventies and grew up in the seventies and eighties in Ashburton, and, and it was you know, a very good, solid um, base for me. Sure. So when did you when did you start drinking and how did it progress? So I, I started as a teenager. You know, I probably really started drinking around the age of sixteen. Um, I was always drinking around the house, but it was never drank alcoholically. You know, my parents didn't do that. Yeah. You know? um, and uh, I was at boarding school, and uh, that's where I, I really got into drinking. And for me, once I got to the sort of senior part of boarding school, and you're allowed out. You know, I uh, that's when I really picked up and got into drinking. Yeah, and and how would you describe the way that you were drinking at that earliest stage? You was it socially alone, binge drinking? Uh, no, it was always with others. But um, what drinking did for me when I first picked it up, it just gave me a boost. It yeah. was like it was really like rocket fuel. Yeah, and um, it did everything for me that I couldn't do for myself. You know, um, I probably had a, a little bit of low self esteem and self awareness, and I didn't quite think I fitted in anywhere although I kind of tried to fit in everywhere but I never felt like I fitted in particularly into one sort of group um, but alcohol gave me everything I thought it was and I loved it yeah. from the first drink um, absolutely loved it and you know I couldn't work out why others didn't want to drink as much as they could Yeah. because why wouldn't you you know what it gave me <laughs> it was like Man, you know, don't you guys get this? Yeah. So, did you ever feel it was a problem? Did you try and stop? No. Right. No, I never felt it was a problem. Um, my drinking, I, th- I, you know, really from the first day right up to the, my last day, I thought drinking was the one good thing I had. Yeah. I thought drinking was, you know, um, brilliant. I liked the taste of it. I liked the feeling it gave me, um, especially at the start, and that's what I chased. Yeah. You know, um, from that, I suppose in my teenage years, in a very controlled environment, I couldn't get into too much trouble. Yeah. And I had friends that looked after me, and we looked after each other. Um, and I spent the rest of my drinking chasing that, and uh, so I never saw the point of giving up. And then, you know, as I progressed in my alcoholism, my alcoholism progressed. Um, I really had to keep drinking, and and I I could justify it, you know. And uh, now I. Every time alcohol called, you know, it only rang once, yeah. and, and I went for it. Yeah. It's <laughs> a great analogy. Um, so what made you realise you needed help? I was destroyed. Right. You know, I was the one where, you know, I, my, whenever things started to get, or say the heat started to come on me, I'd run. You know, I'd be like a rat coming out of a drain pipe. And um, I had the ability that, um, I played sports, I had the ability that I could always get out. Someone always wanted me somewhere, um, and I'd run and I'd leave the carnage. But my road narrowed and I got cornered and I couldn't come out. And uh, I was more scared. I didn't think I had a problem, 
but I was more scared of not doing something about it than doing what, keep doing what I was doing. And, right. and I knew that I knew it was up. And um, but at that stage, I mean, I was absolutely destroyed. Yeah. You know, as as a person. Yeah. Yeah, I might have had a very thin veneer of. You know, I had a job and I was still sort of playing a bit of sport and doing things and I was married. Yeah. But you scratched the surface one millimetre and I was absolutely gone. Yeah. So have, has your drinking caused you to lose any jobs or relationships? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, I could never hold a job down and, and uh, I only got fired once. But I had rat-like cunning to be gone before yeah. I got fired, yeah. and it was always your fault. And yeah. I, you know, I could jump on a plane or do something else, and it was always it never quite worked out for me, or they never understood me. But really, I mean, I, you know, I was pretty much useless. Yeah. And um, relationships, yeah, I, I destroyed everything, you know, because it was all about me and what I could get out of it, and and uh, you know, I'd manipulate. And um, so any relationship I had, um, whether it was with a you know, female in relationship or, or friends, you know, um, it was all what I could take out of it. So, you know, by the end of my drinking, um, I, you know, my relationships were all gone. Yeah. Um, and probably with my family was lucky because I was on the other side of the world. But, right. um, you know, I had broken relationships in that as well. Yeah. Did, did you get into any trouble with the law? Yeah, I did. Funny enough, I did. I, I so I, I started really actively drinking at sixteen, and I came into the program at thirty three, and the law caught up with me at thirty two. Right. And um, I had six assault charges on the one night, which was quite unique, um, against me, and um, still didn't stop me. You know, I was arrested, and um, I was in the cells. I rang a lawyer. I distinctly remember this. I rang a lawyer, and the lawyer said, "I can't help you." And, um, you know, I had a wife and, and um, a toddler and baby at home, and it wasn't my fault. But you remember doing it? You remember? Oh, I remember doing it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah one, of my, uh, one of my things in drinking is I, I had, didn't have enough blackouts. Right. So, which was sheer hell, because I could remember pretty much most of the stuff I did. Yeah. But I still justified it. Yeah. It was never my fault. But, yeah, I did have a bit of problem with the law. Yeah, indeed. Um, Do you have any drink driving convictions? No. Um, and I, if I had a car, I drove drunk. Yeah. It never occurred to me not to because how else was I going to get home? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I had an uncle actually who was convicted. He, he was of drink driving where he was in an accident and, and he'd killed a person. And that was in our family. And that didn't even occur to me when, I was, when I was drinking. It certainly did when I wasn't, when, yeah. when I was in between. But no, if I had keys and I had a car, I was, I was gone. And I never once got breathalyzed. Yeah, wow. And my drinking, which um, unique. Yeah. But it wasn't for want of um, rolling the dice. Yeah. So how did you feel, you know, like mentally, emotionally, you know, spiritually? How were you before you stopped, just before you stopped drinking? Oh, I was emotionally, um, spiritually and, and mentally, I was bankrupt. Yeah. Absolutely bankrupt. You know, I put it best like this is that um, I had a toddler and a baby that meant the world to me, absolutely meant everything to me until I had a drink. Right. And then they're the worst thing that happened to me. Right. If I could get them and my wife out of my life, I would skyrocket. And I wasn't brought up that way. Yeah. You know, it was, that was um, completely uh, against what I'd done and what I believed in myself. Yeah. 
And so that's where it took me. Yeah. That's the best way I can describe it is that, you know, um, the people I love the most um, when I was drinking and trying to get it, find ways to drink, um, I would have sold them for a dollar. Yeah. Can you describe your rock bottom? Um, my, rock, <laughs> my rock bottom was um, the realisation. Funny enough, I'd had this for years that I always sort of had this sort of inkling that uh, something really bad was going to happen to me. Yeah. And I, I went to London when I was 22. 22? And I went to London, and I remember seeing some homeless, um, obviously drunk homeless people. And I just had this vision that I was going to become one of them. Right. And at that stage, you know, my drinking was a huge problem, but it wasn't an outward obvious one, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, I got to 33, and... I realised, I went to my wife and I'd realised that if I don't go into AA, and, and I only wanted to go into AA as an air raid shelter, Yeah. but if I didn't say that I wanted to do it, something horrific was going to happen to me. I was on the edge. and I, I didn't know what it was, but I just knew that it was going to be really bad. Right. And, um, and I had nowhere to go. I had nowhere to turn to. I had no excuse. It was all gone, but I knew that, that it was going to get a lot worse if I... And what I thought I was doing was, what I wanted to hear from my wife, sorry, was, you're all right, it's not your fault, but I didn't hear that. It shared a gutsful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My bags were packed, um, and they were sitting inside the door. And I went to her, I remember going to her the day I went to her, and I was in a lot of trouble, you know. Um, and I said, oh, I think, because th my brother was in the fellowship, I had yeah. an auntie in the fellowship, a couple of cousins. So I knew about AA. But yeah, it wasn't going to affect me. Yeah. And I went to her and I uh, I said to her, oh, you know, I think I should maybe go to an AA meeting. And her exact words was, get into AA or get out. And I was gone. I knew then that um, that well, I was more scared of of uh, not going to AA. Yeah. Than um, than yeah, you know, keep going and behaving the way I was. So it was obviously pretty obvious yeah. to her what the problem was. Oh, I had been for a long time. Yeah. You know, and um, and that was all self-preservation. It wasn't a bit. I used to think it was about my children, and I used to think it was about her. It was all about me yeah. and what was going to happen to me. And the realisation, the game, was I couldn't hide behind anything. Yeah. You know, once, if I was kicked out, then everyone knew. And I don't know, I, I wasn't sure that it was the drinking, but everyone knew I was a failure and everyone knew I was a disaster. Yeah. And I knew that something bad was going to happen to me. And um, that was my rock bottom, and, you know, that took a long time to get there. Yeah, yeah. They do, unfortunately. So can you tell us about how you found your way? I guess you kind of did. You got to the point and you said, I think I need to go. Can you tell us about that first meeting? I can. I can tell you the build-up to it. I was in Ireland and, um, and I didn't know who to contact, so I rang a priest. Right. That's what you do in Ireland. <laughs> and the first thing the priest asked me is, are you abusing your children? And that hit me like a sledgehammer. Is that what you think? Yeah. And so I was on the back foot and then I, I said no and he, he came round to the house and he met my wife and he looked at me and he said, I'll give you a number. And so I rang this number, which was a member of AA and um, he was an interesting character. And he said, come and meet them. So I went and met him and I walked into his house and I had my whole story lined up, all, all lined up to go and... And I was looking for the cup of tea and the chocolate biscuits and the hug and, you know, you're, you're so brave and you're so good to do this. 
and he sat me down and um, he told me his story. Yeah, and it was horrific. Yeah, you know, it was in, it was, you know, I was blinking, and then he said, right, tell me your story, and I started. He said, no, no, just t- tell me, tell me the actual story, and and so I did, and he stopped me after five minutes, and he said, um, you're an alcoholic, and he said, you got two choices. He said, you're at a T junction. You can turn, you can turn left. And what I just told you of my story will become yours. Yeah. He said, I promise you that. He said, we can turn right. And he said, I don't know how your life will turn out, but this will be the worst day. And um, then he told me that he'd take me to two meetings. Yep. And then I could F off and find them myself <laughs> because he wasn't going to carry me. <laughs> so I came out of there thinking I just had a fight with Mike Tyson and it was completely different to what I thought I'd get. And um, the next day he took me to a meeting. Yeah. And then I went into the meeting and um, I sat and listened and I shared. How and did you feel about sharing? Well, because I'd been in so many circumstances of self-preservation, I quickly thought, if you share, they won't look at you. I sort of, I thought, oh, because there was a couple of other newcomers and, and they wouldn't share. And I thought, I'll share. So I thought the light would go off me. Right. <laughs> Still manipulating. Still manipulating. Yeah. And... Uh, and then I, he took me to a, a and, but it was fine. You know, I thought, oh, yeah, that wasn't bad. You know, my biggest fear of going in is who would recognize me. Yeah. You know, I kept looking up for the viewing gallery and, um, or a photo. And, um, but, you know, I remember it. But what I did get out of my first meeting is, is uh, I got a little, I got some sort of hope because I could hear people laughing. Yeah. And I could hear them smiling. And I thought, oh, what's that about? And then he took me to my second meeting and um, then uh, the same thing. And, and I didn't share. I wasn't asked to share, so I didn't share. And um, then I went to sort of four others that he was at and then he became my sponsor. But, yeah. It's funny because my first meeting, I was terrified that I'd see someone I recognised. But what's the worst that can happen? They have the same problem that you do. <laughs> you know, and yet we build this thing up. So he, so you did end up seeing him again if he was your sponsor. Uh, he, oh, yeah. I, I mean, all he was just go to two. And then once I went to two, then we we travelled together um, from that time on. You know, and I was, I mean, I was in Ireland for four years. Well, I was for longer, but my sobriety in Ireland was four years. And right. um, he sponsored me all the way through. Nice. So how do you think you would say to people that you've managed to stay sober? How I've managed? Mm. Um, first of all, well, I was beaten. You know, yeah. I, I had to be beaten. And, you know, if I could find one millimetre of an easier way, I would have taken it. Yeah. I, I had to be beaten. Um, I was extremely lucky with the people I came into the program who were there. Yeah. And I was very, very lucky that... Um, for me, that the guy who uh, sponsored me, you know, years later he laughed because he said he saw himself walking, yeah. manipulating, cunning. You know, as he used to say, you know, you're twisted as a ram's horn. And he said, <laughs> he used to laugh at me and he'd do things like to me. He said, you know, you know, I don't believe what you're telling me. And especially because he'd say, oh, how's your wife and your children? And I'd go, oh, they're great. They're great. And he says, well, I'll go and visit them. And he would. He'd turn <laughs> up and I'd see him there. And he'd say, because that will tell me the truth through yeah. their eyes. Um, and I was really, it was, it was kind of a tough love because I wasn't given the opportunity to interpret it's A or B, take your pick. You know, I was told very early on that I was never, there was never an invite sent out for me. You know, you can come and you can go. 
And I was also told that um, if you're causing more issues not drinking, give everyone a break and go and learn some more. And so I was always on the back foot because right. I wanted people to feel sorry for me. I wanted people to take me and wrap me up and yeah. take responsibility. But the guys who got a hold of me would never allow me to do it. Yeah. It was always you. You know, I was told to um, not say anything in my home. Say plenty in the meetings because we know you're mad. We just like to be reassured. Yeah. But in your house, don't say anything. You know, you, I was told I was a guest. And yeah. you're kind of welcome, but you were unwelcomed until you prove that um, through your actions, not from what you say, that you're allowed to stay there, but you're a guest and um, all those things. And so for me, I, my early sobriety was really the stick. And I needed it because if you'd given me any leeway, yeah, I would have shot. Yeah, you know that was that was just the way I thought. I mean, if I could get something out of a situation that would benefit me without me doing anything or taking any accountability for it, accountability, I was gone. Yeah. So, how do you cope with difficulties now? Um, I go back to the very basics of what I was suggested in in the early days, and so difficulties for me. Yeah, you know, my, my what I was told um, in early sobriety was that it's a program of action. You know, coming into AA will not mean that you'll never drink again or you'll never have any difficulties. Coming into AA will allow you, if you do the suggested things, you're willing, um, will allow you to have a mechanism to deal with life on life's terms. Yeah. And so, for difficulties for me, um. And again, I go back to, you know, I was told to get a God in my life. Yeah. And the exact words to me was, get on your knees, be brought to your knees. I brought into that. You know, that's my story. I could physically see that. Have humility. Getting on my knees is an act of humility. And that's how I started to understand God. Um, I had to do service. I was six weeks in and they threw me the keys to a meeting. Um, I had to do service. I had to have a sponsor. Um, I had to have conscious contact with another alcoholic. Um I had to have a God in my life, and I had to do the steps when I was yeah. ready to do the steps. So the challenges of life and the difficulties, which are the good, the bad, and the ugly, for me, is all based around AA. You know, um, the serenity prayer is, is, is still my first portal call yeah. to step back. You know, I don't have to step forward. And step back is do not say what you're thinking. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that I was told very early on was to walk softly into a room. It took me about two years to work out. It's not about me. Yeah. It's not about me in my house. It's not about me at work. It's definitely not about me at AA. But they were drilled. I had those consistently into me. And, and um, so to talk about how I deal with difficulties, I went to do the steps. I hated the steps. I certainly hated some parts of it, and I thought there was no way. But being a horse thief, which was they used to call me yeah. these old guys, I went and said, I'm ready to do the steps. And they laughed at me. And they said, well, you got, we got one issue with you doing the steps. What's that? Honesty. You're not honest. Yeah, okay. So I, it was another 12 months, and I did the steps through pain. And my sponsor um, wouldn't do the steps with me. He said, no, you need a step man. So he was about 15, 16 years sober. And he sent me off and I found a guy who was 33 years and um, at the time I was oh you know I don't want to go to this guy yeah why am I doing him and my sponsor knows me but you know what I realised after I'd done the steps was they'll be thoroughly done yeah 
and also some of the steps because I was quite close to my sponsor with this guy I was close with but I absolutely did it and um, my step work I did the steps in 24 weeks it was two weeks a step I had to be at a certain place at a certain time I remember being two minutes late he told me to go right he said no he said and and I had to have done everything and read through them and, and we went through them in his way and um, they're brilliant. You know, I've, it was such a good way of doing them for, for me. Yeah. And so my difficulty all goes back to that. You know, I go back to what I've learned in AA, um, what that my, um, the tools that it's given me and I was told I had to do it every day. You know, I had to be willing to do it every day and one, if I do that and some days I'm really good at it, some days I'm really bad at it. And, you know, I start my day on my knees and I finish my day with a prayer. And in between, I call on whoever and whatever I need to as many times. And um, I've never changed it. Yeah. And, um, I mean, there's times I tick a box and I've been really slack, but I suffer for that. Yeah. Um, And other times where it's been good. But one thing that I was told about difficulties was that if I 100% hand my will and my life over to God and I'm willing to, God will never put something in front of me that I can't handle. And up till today, that's that's been true. Yeah. There's a lot of things I don't want to handle. You know, teenage, teenage daughters is certainly one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And a lot of things, but for some reason, I can handle it. I don't always make the best decision. I don't always do the right thing, but I can handle it. Yeah. And if I do the wrong thing, I can go and apologize or learn from it. Yeah. So I wonder if you could describe um, yourself and the life that you have today. Um, well, I'm still a maniac. But I have a very vanilla life. Yeah. I um, I'm married. Um, I ra- I'm, pa- I'm I'm with my wife. We bring up children. You know, I'm involved in the community. Um, I pay a mortgage. I contribute. I do all the things that I didn't know existed, and if I th- kind of thought, I didn't want a part of. Yeah. Because they're all accountable and responsibility. So it's fantastic life, and that is beyond my wildest dreams. Thank you. Now, if we've got we've got listeners out there, what would you suggest to them if they think they have a drinking problem? What's your advice to them? My advice, if you think you have a drinking problem, is um, contact AA. Mm-hmm. Um, go to a meeting. You're not going to be signed up. You're not going to be judged. Um, no one's going to go, why are you in here? And listen. And if you hear something that attracts you, come back to the second meeting. Um, and if you hear something that you want, come back to the third and then see how it goes. Hey, Sean, thanks so much for coming on the show today and sharing your story with us. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. This... Cool. For our listeners, if you've related to anything you've heard or would like some more information about Alcoholics Anonymous, you can look us up on the web at www.aa.org.nz or call us on 0800 AA Works. There are over 60 meetings a week in Canterbury, so it's likely there's one near you. Join us next week to hear more from AA members sharing their experiences. Our show airs every Monday at 5.30pm on Plains FM and repeats on Wednesday at 12.30pm. You can also find podcasts of our past shows on the Plains FM website at plainsfm.org.nz or you can download, subscribe and listen to podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. That brings us to the end of the show. Thank you for listening. And remember, if you want to drink, that's your business. But if you want to stop, we can help, and you don't have to do it alone. We will now close the show with a serenity prayer, as we do in every AA meeting. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, 
and the wisdom to know the difference. You've been listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show on Plains FM 96.9. 